Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? spiced trade winds of Trinidad and Tobago. Thankfully, some of the traditions of his Caribbean home, the political confrontation of a calypso and the melody of a steel drum left their mark before he moved to the rainy doldrums of England at the age of 22. There, would you believe it, he became the lead singer of a heavy rock band. Cut to earlier this year and poet, writer and academic Anthony Joseph won the T.S. Eliot Prize for his book, Sonnets for Albert. Anthony Joseph, welcome to you. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. What do you remember about that very magical place, Trinidad and Tobago, of your youth? Uh, pretty much everything. I mean, I, I left Trinidad in my early 20s, so I had a, a full life there. So, uh, yeah, formative years, you know, growing up in Trinidad, going to carnival, listening to a lot of calypso music, steel pan, just a, a full life, you know. So that was my upbringing. Very eclectic, very eccentric, very... Um, sort of uh, fascinating and surprising culture that kind of is different. It's a really different culture. For anyone that hasn't been, it's the best way I could describe Trinidad is that it's different. It is. It really is. And there is that mix of culture that you almost don't get anywhere else. You know, you've got Indian culture, you've got Caribbean culture, you've got colonial culture. Yeah. It all sort of mixes up as, as one, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wrote a book called Kitsch about a Trinidadian Calypsonian Oldman Roberts nicknamed Lord Kitchener who went on, uh, well, essentially went to England mm -hmm. on the Windrush. Of course, that generation arrived in the UK before your time. Yeah. How did they set the path for you in the UK? Well, you know, Kitchener, by the time Kitchener actually arrived in, in the UK in 1948, there were already Caribbean people there. There were already a lot of musicians and, there, you know, people from the Caribbean had been traveling to the UK, you know, since the abolition of slavery, even before that. Um, so Kitchener entered into a London that already had an idea of what the Caribbean was, but his generation that came at that point really sort of expanded. And I think, you know, a lot of people said, that, oh, that was the, the beginning of multicultural Britain. Um, and what Kitchener and people like him did is they brought Caribbean culture and Caribbean music into the mainstream. 
So whereas before Caribbean culture was kind of hidden and pocketed in different places and you could go to Soho and go down in the basement and hear maybe Calypso, Kitchener was on the BBC. He was on BBC Radio, he was on BBC TV. And because of him, a lot of entertainers and musicians and, and writers from the Caribbean, not just because of him, but he was part of a movement that saw Caribbean culture kind of elevated in the UK to a more sort of mainstream status into now it is the equal i think of english culture whatever that is. i think english culture is also caribbean culture mm. now yeah mm. listening to your song uh, calling england home the lyrics tell the story of a man setting up life in england is this also about kitch's journey it's the journey of a lot of people like kitch it's uh, you know the the, the song uh, the poem is split into three sections and the first section deals with that sort of really windrush era people that came in the just after the Second World War, late 40s. Kitchener was part of that movement. And then it goes to the 1950s where people were still coming within that sort of, um, you know, approaching at the end of colonialism in the Caribbean. They, they came to the UK and they worked on the buses and they, they worked on the railways. And they, beca they became a, a political force as well in the 1950s. And then it jumps to my own experience moving to London in the late 80s. So it tries to cover that whole span of history. We'll hear that song calling England home shortly, but the in instrumentals feel a bit like Molatu Astaki, like the sort of Ethiopics. I'm sure you've heard this before. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, but, but you used to be in a heavy rock band. Yeah. Tell me about that move across genres. <laughs> it certainly piqued my interest. Oh, man, that's interesting. I mean, you know, when I was growing up in Trinidad, um, I was writing poetry. I started writing poetry when I was about 11 years old. But I had no idea what a poet was. I thought, you know, uh, that I the only way that I could be a writer in that way was to be a musician and a singer and a lyricist. So I started writing a lot of songs. And that's how actually I started writing poetry through music. And then when I came to the UK... I was young, you know, and I, I thought, oh man, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start a band. I'm gonna be like Prince. I'm gonna be like Jimi Hendrix. I'm gonna. So I started this black rock band because at that time, there was a, a trend for black rock bands, and I, I, yeah, I loved it, and I did that for a few years. I did that for a few years before I came back to an understanding of what a poet was, and I thought, okay, this is what I am. I'm actually a poet. So yeah. I read that that understanding that you're mm. talking about came when you found a box of your written words and mm -hmm. realised that they were poems, not lyrics. Yeah. So apart from the usual structures of a song or a sonnet, how did you know that they were poems and not lyrics? Is it something about the sentiment? Or, or, or did you change in that time? I mean, I changed in that time. I was reading as well. So I, I was reading a lot of poetry and I realised that, yeah, I was writing poetry. But that, yeah, that realization, you know, becoming a, a poet and taking on that title is a, it was, was a huge thing because it meant an acceptance of poverty. <laughs> <laughs> it was an acceptance of poverty. A bit um, like journalism, I have to say. Oh, we're, we're on yeah, the same page yes, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you accept that. You're like, oh, okay, this is what I am. So it's uh, you either go into it fully or you, you pull out of it. You, you can't go into it uh, half-heartedly. So at that time, maybe I was just naive and I thought, you know what, I'm a poet. I'm going to be that. I'm going to live that life regardless to what happens, you know. You explore your relationship to your largely absent father through the book Sonnets for Albert. How did the sonnet allow you the capacity to try and love your father? The sonnet is a really good form for, for presenting an argument and trying to resolve the argument or trying to resolve something that is... Uh, 
kind of a difficult internal process that you might be going through. It's It fits that because it's brief enough for you to have an idea, complicate the idea and resolve it, which is essentially what great sonnets do. They present an idea, complicate it and resolve it. So I had to find a way of resolving my understanding of what my dad was, you know, why I loved him. I knew I loved him, even though he wasn't a great father, but I didn't want to just write a series of poems in praise of him. I wanted to to question his mythology and question him as a man, kind of in his absence, but to question what I thought of him. As all uh, sons and yeah, children must do. But absolutely. you had that uh, sort of impediment of distance. Did your mm. father ever hear or read your poetry? <laughs> Not really. I mean... He, I gave him my books, but he was he was not interested. There's a poem in there about that actually. That he he looked at the back of the book. He was more interested in the blurb and what people had said about the book, and he was very proud of that. And he was very proud of that. You know, the biography said, "Oh, I was a, a lecturer here and a lecturer that I had done all these things." He was like, "Wow, that, that's 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 good. That's good." But he never actually opened the book and read it. <laughs> but he, but he was proud of you in his own way. Yeah, of course. Yeah, he was. He was. He was because you know I was. Um, I guess the first generation of well, I was the firstborn of of him. I, I was his first son, um, and you know, people in Trinidad always assume that once you leave Trinidad and go to somewhere like England, you've done well automatically. You've done well, and if you compound that by being a, a, a professor or a writer, then they're like, wow, you know, you've done really well. You know, <laughs> so he was very proud of that. Coming from that sort of colonial mindset, that. Mm. Any trip to the UK or to America was a good thing, you know. <laughs> if you just join me, poet and academic Anthony Joseph is in town for the Sydney Writers' Festival. He's joining me here in the studio on RN Drive. Just talking about the sonnet, I mean, many might think that sonnets are, are quite a Western or European form of expression. Maybe it makes people think of John Donne or Keats or Shakespeare. Yeah. But does, does it feel almost like a form of rebellion, taking power back from the colonisers to write about your Caribbean heritage using the format of a sonnet? Well, you know, there's a couple of things about that. Uh, the great St. Lucian poet, Derek Walcott, who won the Nobel Prize in, I think, 1992, um, was asked a similar thing, you know, because he his work was very, it's very sort of anglicised, very, you know, a lot of it was. A lot of it was, was drawing on a tradition of English poetry, classical English poetry. And what Walcott said was that, um, I don't feel any... Um, I, there's no problem for me. I don't feel any bad way about trying to write the great, like the greatest of the English poets, because the English language doesn't belong to anyone. It belongs to the imagination, you know. So I agree with that. I think that um, the sonnet as a form is open to me and open to everyone, because the sonnet is actually one of the reasons why it's such a popular and resilient form is that it's become more than just a poem. It becomes. It's become over the years more than just a form. It's become a thing, a cultural thing that people can identify in things that are not poems. You can identify the effect of a sonnet in painting, in film, in music. It's you the know. first multimedia, uh, you know, lyrical construct maybe. Yeah. You know. But you've also subverted the format by changing the iambic pentameter, oh, yeah. usually used in poetry and, and adding more of a calypso rhythm yeah. to it to sort of mimic the rhythm that your father yeah. spoke. Are you able to give us a bit of an example of that? I can read something, yeah. I can read something actually that's in um, in Creole. Well, it's kind of in Creole. Um, I have a poem here that's actually in his voice. 
this is a, a poem called Fire For You. Now, my father was really a, a very funny, charismatic man. And he tells this story about how he caught an iguana in Trinidad at work. He was doing, he was a security guard and he was working one day and caught an iguana. And in Trinidad, unfortunately, we eat iguanas. <laughs> And they're very tasty. <laughs> so he, uh, this, is, this is him talking about that. Fire for you. I say, Kairun, keep away from me. Keep away from me, Kairun. I'm going to let go it. She bawl, oh God, Uncle Joe, I call in the superintendent. I say, Kairun, you could call who you want. I have him. I tie up Meguana and leave him in the office. He can't move with a tie-eye-tie hand behind his back. When I ready to go home in the evening, I put him in a crocus bag and I come up the road. I bring him home alive. By the time I reach home, I tired. I say, you see me? Me I go in and bun no go on now, nah? I leave him in the bathroom. The next day when I come back from work, he raise his head so I say, well, brother, well, fire for you, we. Eh? <laughs> fire for you. That's Anthony. Fire for you. <laughs> Anthony Joseph. Yeah, that just reminds me of uh, an Australian father catching a goanna and maybe not eating it, but it's the same sort catching of... Catching a what? A, a goanna. This is What's an that? Australian lizard. This is oh, our iguana, okay. except we don't okay. eat them. Okay, not, okay. Well, uh, traditional uh, landowners would, but yes. n- not, a, not a popular protein staple, you might, <laughs> you might say. Okay. Um, uh, th- th- that kind of calypso rhythm, yeah. I'm just wondering if it's a missing link between poetry and music because there's... Australians probably aren't really aware of mm. the, the rich Calypso tradition and how politicised it yeah. is, sounding sweet but having yeah. a tough edge. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what the Calypso is. You know, it, it presents itself as a jovial, happy-go-lucky, very naive form, but actually it's it's political. You know, the people that started singing Calypso, did they were rebels. They were revolutionaries that rebelled and used the the uh, the language of the colonizer to critique the colonizer and to comment on things that were going on in their society in a way that was, uh, you know, that was hidden within the lyrics. So so a, a Calypsonian could comment on the polit- on the politics or a particular politician, but never call names, allude to it, and subvert it, and be very subversive, with double entendre, saying one thing meaning another. You know, the Calypsonians were really clever for that, and they really mastered. They were masters of the English language. Mm. Yeah. Anthony Joseph has been my guest, and he'll be at the Sydney Writers Festival tonight. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Amazing, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.